Hello, everyone, and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. In today's episode of Saturn Returns, I am revisiting one of my favorite episodes from one of my favorite humans, and that is Africa Brooke. Africa and I actually met when we did this recording. We didn't know each other beforehand, and someone introduced me to her work, and I thought, I have to have her on the show. And we instantly became friends, and she is now one of my closest friends. I cannot imagine my life without her. And it was such an amazing moment because I have managed to meet and make some friends through doing this podcast that, you know, I can't imagine my life without. And it's something that you guys often message me about is, you know, how do you find people in a like-minded community that are on the same path as you, that are on a spiritual path? And when we navigate our 20s and go into our 30s, it's often a, a tricky thing because we don't necessarily align with the people that we grew up with. Our values change, our interests change. Our lives suddenly go in very different directions and, you know, sometimes people seem like they're speeding ahead and they're getting married and having children and we might not be there yet. And so you just don't have the same things in common anymore. And so Africa is really someone that has come into my life, I guess, you know, recently and late for some. They might think, you know, making friends in your 30s is is late. But I have found that my friendships that I've made over the last couple of years since doing the podcast have been some of the most profound and closest and just meeting someone like exactly where you are and having these things in common and someone that's also able to call you out on your own bullshit as well you know and me and Africa often joke about having similar pasts and being quite wild and reckless in our 20s and I have loved seeing her go from strength to strength in her career she is taking over and it's been such a joy to witness and I'm so incredibly proud of her. She also very kindly joined me last year as the guest for my live show and so as we are about to do our next live show I wanted to share with you this episode as it it's a really important one you know self-sabotage is a really complex theme and she unpacks it in a way that makes it feel very digestible and makes a lot of sense So I'm very grateful to have her as a friend and for her guidance and support. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to Saturn Returns with me, Kagi Dunlop. This is a podcast that aims to bring clarity during transitional times where there can be confusion and doubt. The real me that had to navigate the real world without drugs and alcohol and, and parties the consequences. and the consequences, I never felt like enough because now I'm comparing mm. myself to this version that everyone wow. loves. So I don't feel like enough. It's like, is this the only way for me to be able to get that kind of validation? Mm. Um, and it was. But it comes to a point where you have to have like personal sovereignty and be like, for hey, sure. am I going to take ownership of sure. this or and is it going to own me? Yeah. And people just start drifting away from you. I am very excited to be joined by Africa Brooke for this episode of Saturn Returns. I was introduced to Africa's work through Anoni Forbat, who came on the podcast at the beginning of the season. And I wanted to speak to someone specifically about self-sabotage because I find it such an interesting thing. And I definitely am someone that suffers from it 
quite badly myself, but also the sort of creativity behind my self-sabotaging ways. When I was introduced to Africa's work, I was like, this is my girl. She is a mindset and business coach and an NLP practitioner. And as soon as I started watching her videos on Instagram, I was like, oh, wow, this girl is awesome. And we had the best conversation. It went on so long that I actually had to break this into two parts. So you'll be hearing the second part early next year. But this one, we really focus on addiction, self-sabotaging behaviors, limiting self-belief and making peace with the past version of yourself, which I think is such an important part of your Saturn Returns journey because you do change so much and you let go of so many ways of behaving that just aren't serving you anymore that you've outgrown. And it can be really difficult. It can be a difficult process because there is a sort of death of self like I've discussed previously, but also to make peace with the person that you used to be. So we really talk about that because both of us have gone through these humongous transitions in terms of the kind of people we are today. And I'm very grateful to now call her a friend after having this meeting with her. So I hope you enjoy it and you learn something from it. And thank you very much for listening. But before we get into the episode, let's check in with our astrological guide for the season, Nora. So it's a big theme during the Saturn return, this theme of self-sabotage and self-denial, feeling like we are not good enough to receive love unless we have the perfect career or feeling like we're not good enough to get the career position we want unless we work hard and overdo it at, at the workplace and kind of compromise ourselves. Saturn return really confronts us with these little fallacies in our self-confidence and it asks us to show up for ourselves and to become that inner authority that we always have had. It kind of confronts us and obligates us to stop patterns of self-sabotage so that we can thrive and truly mature into the adults that we are meant to become after the Saturn return, which is after the age of 30. The age between 28 and 30 can be very confronting on that front where we do self-sabotage and we do deny ourselves happiness in some ways. Saturn is really just teaching us by ways of fear and by ways of obstacles to choose ourselves and to not compromise ourselves and to not devalue ourselves. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I'm very excited about this conversation. Me too. But also you have a very strong energy. Mm. Like amazing energy and that's why I was so excited to meet you because I was like oh my god I can't wait to actually be in the presence of her and it was as soon as I walked in and I was like oh my god she's really the real deal thank you can you explain to everyone a little bit about what you do and who you are yes absolutely so my name is Africa and in terms of what I do I help people to overcome self-sabotage I work with people to rewire their way of thinking to change their mindsets And self-sabotage is something that I'm just so passionate about because I could have a PhD. In in, self-sabotage. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, you you need to in order to be able to tell people how, like, not to do it. Right? Mm. Um, So I'm an NLP practitioner. So NLP is neuro linguistic programming it's pretty much like a user's manual for the mind so it's Mm -hmm. like really understanding our behavior and the way that we think but on a subconscious level so it's working with the subconscious mind Mm -hmm. and I'm a clinical hypnotherapist I'm a mindset coach and I also work with people in terms of business so fusing all of those things through a business lens that's amazing Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna lie when you said the self-sabotaging thing 
it like it stirred a lot of stuff. Really? Yeah, because I think I mean we're all guilty of it yeah. in our own ways. But what I I've done a lot of work around myself sabotaging, mm-hmm. and we're going to bring this back to 2016 for you because I think we have some similar yes. experiences in the more obvious ways that one self-sabotages. Uh-huh. However, self-sabotaging can be very creative. Yes. And because it's not necessarily on a conscious thought level, yeah. it can creep up on you and suddenly you're like, oh, wow, I've just destroyed something I really right. like. Absolutely. And for you, would you say, um, just so I kind of know, would you say that it's something that now when it shows up, you're very aware of it or because of the level of awareness that you have, it shows up in sneakier ways because that's how, that's how it happens. It's sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> like at the beginning, I was like, okay, things going well in my life, go out, get drunk, ruin everything. Yes. Pretty standard. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that. But it was like very much, I was like, okay, how can I press the destruction button? Mm. And it it was like, it was deeper than just drinking and being a bit reckless. It was like, I was ruining stuff for myself yeah and so I did a lot of work around that but now yeah it's it creeps in sneakily it does the one thing that I love to let people know about self-sabotage and I'll, I'll just give a definition of what it is essentially it is when you get in your own way it's when you won't allow yourself to experience fulfillment when you won't allow yourself to follow through when you won't allow yourself to go for the opportunities that you really want or when things are going well, you know, you start to feel resistance and something on a subconscious level tells you to put a spanner in the works. But the most important thing, and I think this is something that has helped me so much is understanding that we're not doing it because we hate ourselves. Mm -hmm. You're not doing it because you truly believe you're a piece of shit who doesn't deserve anything good, no. It's actually a way of um, preserving yourself. You're protecting yourself from something. Mm-hmm. And of it the can, unknown. Yeah, of the unknown. And it can seem like such an odd thing, you know, because I, I was thinking to myself, how was I protecting myself by having reckless casual sex? Mm-hmm. How was I protecting myself by binge drinking and blacking out? And when you how were curious that, about it in that. Yeah, yeah. Right? But then I realized that I was protecting myself from facing what was really happening from facing my traumas from having a look at my fears I was protecting myself from loneliness I thought this was the only way that I could connect with people that this was intimacy Um, right exactly so I think it's important to realize that it's it's all about protecting yourself but now as a self-aware adult as a self-aware person you have to find new healthier ways to protect yourself Mm -hmm. right so to bring it back for you Mm because a big part of your journey was 2016, Uh when you went sober? Yes. 2016, I was 24. I'm 28 now. I um, finally got sober after 10 years of having such a toxic relationship with drugs and alcohol. And it wasn't in a way where I was physically dependent. It wasn't a case of me drinking or doing drugs every single day, but... I was a binge drinker and I was a binge anything. I could not just kind of have a little bit of anything and step away. The intention was always to kind of escape my body and to escape my mind from 14 until 24. But alcohol was my vice. Drugs were a big part of that, but um, alcohol Alcohol for me, oh, absolutely. It really was. So I tried seven times to get sober, consciously tried, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. What did that involve? That involved me 
saying, verbalizing that I'm not going to be drinking anymore. It involved me trying my best to stay away from the environments that were kind of Mm -hmm. calling me in. In the beginning, it was moderation. Right. And for me, moderation was much more evil than just stopping because I get that. Yeah, (laughs) I totally get that. Because my intention was not to kind of just sip the drink or to it was to get fucked up every single time. And this is the thing. It's such a personal thing. One's relationship with alcohol. It's like it's not very helpful when people are like, oh, well, you don't have a problem. So just like moderate because it's literally like saying, "Okay, go out every night and play Russian roulette with yourself. Yes. Oh my goodness. That's exactly what it was like. Mm. And you're like, oh, I survived <laughs> last night. I can do this thing. And then like a couple of nights later and suddenly you're like waking up and you're like, I have no idea what I did last night. Kagi, that is exactly <laughs> what it was like. And I um, kept people around me and I didn't realize that it was, I was strategically doing this, but I kept people around me who also had the same drinking behavior, mm-hmm. who also had the same drug taking behavior. And I'm not going to lie, I had fun. I've, I've had a lot of fun in my life, but I knew just how much I was suffering. And so many people that I speak to, people that message me, people that I know, people that I knew from the past also knew that this is a very dangerous thing that I'm doing. It's not normal to lose five hours of your time to be on, yeah, to Mm -hmm. be on autopilot for such a long amount of time. So would you have these like blackout things where you, you know, you were walking and talking as Africa, like you were doing stuff, you were going places, but you had no awareness. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I used to think that's terrifying. Oh my goodness. But it was, because it's like you're kind of possessed. Because then the next day people no, are like, you true. did this and you were quite funny. And you're like, okay. It's but then like someone's like, but you also did that. And you're like, maybe. Oh my God. That, that's the thing. And you know what? I would experience such deep shame. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of enter a room and people loved fun time Africa. People fucking loved it. And I loved it because people loved it. It was amazing when it was amazing. You know, you're having so much fun. You don't know when it's going to take a turn. Mm-hmm. And then it all just changes. And you wake up in the morning. Waking up in Surrey when the last memory I had was so hurt. That happened. I went for lunch in Soho and I woke up in Surrey two days later. That's not normal. That's not, that's not okay. Again, there's, a, there's still a part of me that's like, I love it. And then you just have a deep intuitive feeling that something happened that shouldn't have happened. I I would have no idea. I would just know that that cycle is going to repeat where I have to apologize for this version of myself that I take with me every time that I go out. And it's like, I try to silence her before we get to the event. We have a little chat. Okay, today is going to be different. You're not coming out. (laughs) Mine was called Katrina. I'd be like, you're not coming out of your cage and now people even come up to me today like my friends are like where's Katrina I'm like I hope she's dead <laughs> I'm really praying that she saves me under and will never return so I so completely it, it get it was, it was bad because it's it a part was bad. of you yeah but then it's also it, you feel in a way so disassociated from for it for sure would you say that it was a part of you that you weren't owning Or was it just the alcohol that made you that way? It was a part of me that I wasn't owning. It Mm -hmm. was a very repressed part Mm -hmm. of me. 
and it's amazing to realize that I'm all of those things now, but at the time, how I would describe it is the part of me that is so confident, the part of me that is so fearless, the part of me that can have a conversation with anyone, the part of me that has so many plans, so many ideas, because this was another thing. <laughs> <laughs> I can, and I know exactly what you were oh like right now. <laughs> And to other people, it sounds amazing because mm. I was very good at manipulating people's perception of me. Also, I have to be very honest about something. When you look a certain way and you benefit from pretty privilege, for example, mm -hmm. it also creates this persona in an even more mm -hmm. amplified way. I would just bullshit my life away. It was exciting. <laughs> sounds but it was great. Also <laughs> <laughs> Katrina and me's like, go on. <laughs> but, it was <laughs> but it was so dangerous because the real me that had to navigate the real world without drugs and alcohol and, and the parties and the consequences I never felt like enough because now I'm comparing mm. myself to this version that everyone wow. loves so I don't feel like enough it's like is this the only way for me to be able to get that kind of validation mm. um, and it was but it comes to a point where you have to have like personal sovereignty and be like for okay, sure am I going to take ownership over for this sure. or and is it going to own me yeah and people just start drifting away from you because that side of you is only fun for a certain amount of time before, for like an hour yeah I wouldn't kind of stumble everywhere. Maybe there'd be times where I would kind of stumble, yeah. whatever. But I would kind of just be, mm. just be there. But my eyes would We're be... gone. <laughs> I get it. I had the same thing. And my friends would be like, your eyes went. And I was like, you know what? I'm done with yeah. her tonight. And I would be walking, talking, being the life and soul... But I'm not really... You're not, you're not there. There. I'm so thankful we didn't meet. <laughs> you know what's interesting though? Because my best friend now, I only met her, or like probably the person I'm close to, I only met her a year ago. Okay. And she hears about this version of me and she's just like, I just can't get my head around. Oh, for sure. But I kind of like, I get it with you because I had it in me. Yeah. But meeting you now, I'm like, you have like the calmest energy. <laughs> and so it's so interesting that you have yeah. that experience. Chaotic. What changed and what yeah. shifted from you going into that place? For me, there wasn't just one thing. It was a collection yeah. of incidents for the span of 10 years mm -hmm. where it had started off being fun. People are entertained by this character. I think by the time I was about 20, that's when I knew there was definitely something wrong, but there was way too much shame to actually speak to anyone about it. So I would just go onto Google and I would just type, is it normal to black out? Is it normal mm -hmm. to drink this much? And, you know, I'd read things, but I still wasn't ready to let go of that identity. It was just so powerful. What I was going to say, it was so woven into your identity oh and within goodness. your friendship groups and everything. Yeah. That you're like, who are how do I exist without this? Yes, yes. And who am I? Right. I and didn't how do think I navigate it was possible. That. Yeah. You know, now I'm able to have conversations about identity and different selves. And But when you're in it and when you're that young, you don't have the language mm. for it. It's just happening. And, and you, you have Google. Yeah, you have Google. That is it. black and white. Right. And you think something is wrong with you. You don't understand, for example, the industry of alcohol, the way that alcohol is advertised, especially for women, you know, um, all of these things that I know now that I didn't know then. But in 2016, it was just me being exhausted. I think it was more of a spiritual exhaustion. I wasn't even going out that much by that time because I knew I had so much anxiety around even going out because I felt so out of control in my own mind. And I knew that having one glass of wine 
is not what I want. I want to drink everything. Why would if I have one? If you did have one, did it affect you in any way? No, it didn't. But it would leave me wanting. It would feel so empty because that's not what I wanted. I wasn't drinking for the taste. Yeah, you were I could pretend. For the escape. Right there we go. So did it ever come into your dreams? Alcohol only when I got sober. That happened only, to me. Yeah. Big time. It happens to so many people. Like, would you have dreams of what you used to do? Absolutely. Yes. Dreams of me binging. <laughs> you know what? I I had it like, I mean, I've only just started to stop, but occasionally I have it again. I think it's yes. the subconscious being like, I know you're not doing it, but just please don't do this again. Yes. <laughs> and you know what? Something also that would happen to me for about the first two years is that if I had gone out and stayed out quite late mm. and had an amazing time, when I woke up in the morning for a brief moment, I would feel hungover. Phantom hangover. Yeah, I get this. What too. is that? <laughs> Me and my friend called them phantom hangovers. Because you wake up and you're like, oh my God, I have that shame. <laughs> you're like, what did I do? And I used to get it after having the dreams as well. And then it takes me like a bit wow. of time to be like, oh, I actually didn't do anything. Is it almost like because you associated yeah. alcohol with fun so much and maybe staying out late that it's sort of I think it's just for triggers. so long in those scenarios, you would do the same thing. Yeah. But it's so burnt into your like memory and your muscle memory and your body and your emotions that it just comes up being like, this is what you would have done. This is how you'd feel. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Oh, and then I would just feel, yeah, so grateful that that hasn't happened. Yeah. So 2016 was me just being fed up of my own shit. And I had tried seven times by that time to get sober. Again, as I was saying, I was reading a lot of things. I would maybe go a week. Longest I did was six months. And then I ended up having one beer and then I was out for five days. So... <laughs> <laughs> We've been there. Honestly, We've all been there. <laughs> also, I had lost pretty much all my friends. Mm. I only had one person that I still am so close to to this very day that understood me, had seen me in those moments, had told me the truth about what she sees when that transition happens and how it's not okay, but not in a way of judging me, kind of trying to help me, to support me. And I had my boyfriend at the time who had met me when I was in that part of my life. And then in our relationship, I got sober. So it was quite easy for me in a social aspect because I didn't have so many people around me to kind of have to navigate sobriety yeah. in that. I didn't have many people in my life at that point because of the way that I had been. It, which in a weird way is a bit of a blessing. Oh, for sure. Because I think if you're not doing it in the infrastructure of AA or yeah. therapy, I believe, and this is only from my personal experience, but it seems similar to yours, that there's a necessary social exile that you oh, have to yes. walk through and to get sober, basically. For sure. And to make those decisions and to let that become a permanent in your new self. Yes, yes. That's what happened for me. And I think because there was so much space in terms of not many people being in my life, that meant there was so much space for new people to flow into my life that met me at that sober level. I tried AA and I just didn't connect. So I went onto Instagram as, as you do. I went onto Instagram and four years ago, there wasn't anyone talking about sobriety in the way that they are now. I mean, it's still quite a taboo subject. Yeah, yeah. And now the good thing is that I feel like a lot of young people are starting to question their relationship with alcohol. They're starting to actually question a lot of systems and alcohol mm. is a part of that. 
But four years ago, there was nothing. There were just forums with kind of much older people. So I didn't see myself. And especially when it came to black people, African people, I, I did not see myself. So I went onto Instagram and I started my account, which I still have to this very day. And then I just started sharing my story. And not because I thought anyone was going to see it, but it was just like a diary. Anytime and it's also an that accountability I felt, thing for yourself. Oh, for sure. Mm. Anytime that I felt... I was going to drink anytime that I had been so proud of myself because I've been to my first party and I was the first to leave because that was another thing. Africa never left. Last leave. <laughs> I, again, I totally get that. Oh my, so I would enter spaces, people love it. By the end, they're like, can someone get just fall? Get the bouncers, get her out. <laughs> yeah. Never wanted to leave. So... I'd be so proud of myself that I was able to leave, that I was able to say no, and I would just share. And then over time, um, people started reaching out to me, people that I knew in the past as well, telling me about their struggles with drugs. I had no idea. Wow. So yeah, I just started sharing my story on there and I would read books, I would watch talks, I would find forums and kind of connect with people. I would use hashtags to see who was in London. But Instagram really, it changed my life. I think I was able to remain sober because of the community that I found. And that you built. Yeah. That's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people will resonate. It's like there's a spectrum and yet it seems quite black and white. It's like Mm. you're either a normal person that drinks or you're like powerless in an AA. Right. And I I kind of was like, I don't know, like where I land on the scale. So I constantly go from like that to to like nothing. Yeah. And actually there's a massive thing in between. Like you say, people are becoming a lot more consciously aware. Yeah. Systems are breaking down. And this is a huge part of it. And I think voices like yours are incredibly powerful to give people the courage Mm. to sort of change their way of behaving too. Thank you, yeah. How did you sort of alchemize that into like Mm. what you're doing now? Yes, I, when I started to see other people sharing just how much me sharing was impacting them, I started to realize that actually I was not the one to blame. I started doing a lot of research just about alcohol and mindset in in general. And then I was able to shift the blame for myself from myself and understand that it was much bigger than that. There were patterns within me that had to be healed. There was trauma that had to be addressed. There was a certain way in which I was socialized to believe that to get acceptance, I need to be this, I need to be that, all of those things. And once I started to learn that, I think I was able to start accepting myself and looking deeper into myself. And another thing that also happened around that same time is I realized that I had so much sexual shame and the way that sexual shame manifested was that when I was still drinking, casual sex was also something that I really normalized. I felt like that was the only way for me to get connection, especially from men. So I felt so detached from my body, even though I was pretty much using my body very often. So by the time I got sober, I realized that was a huge area that I had to actually take a look at. Do some work on. Huge, huge. Because if you'd been using the alcohol to then have that connection, then you take that away. It was probably pretty obvious that that was something that needed to be looked at. Oh, absolutely. There was this book that I found and I recommend this to everyone. It's called Women's Anatomy of Arousal by Sherry Winston. And this was a book that pretty much teaches you how to actually connect with your sexuality. Because again, I felt so detached from my sexuality. I thought that I couldn't have sex that I really enjoyed unless I was high. 
or unless I was drunk. And because the first time that I had sex when I was 14, alcohol was a part of that as well. So it's almost like I started to associate alcohol and sex every but single so ma- time. So many people do because yeah. their first experience usually, yes. I'm generalize, yes. is, you know, wrapped up in alcohol because that lubricates the situation and you don't have those uncomfortable moments that you do when you're sober but then it does create this association between sex and alcohol and then even to like go even further and trying to dismantle that there's the sort of patriarchy and how sex Mm -hmm. is I think sold through the male gaze from such a young age you know men now grow up watching porn that's their idea of sexual intercourse like from a very young age that's their education on it and so we go into it in this very like disconnected, unembodied way, and then wonder like why we have a lot of shame yeah. as a society around yeah. it because the way we're practicing it is not right. Yes. Oh my goodness, you nailed it. You nailed it. And it's also for me as well. Porn was my first teacher, and this all ties into kind of my sobriety and the kind of coaching that I do now and the way that I use my voice. But for me, porn was my first teacher at the age of nine. So by the time, yeah, and for so many people it is, and now it's even younger. So by the time I was 14, porn had kind of trained me in terms of what a woman's desire looks like, what my body should move like, what positions I should be in. And because alcohol was also- As a performance, right. And also as something that is done to me, not something Mm. that I experienced. So I- was faking orgasms from the very beginning up until I was 25. And it's so normalized. Women laugh about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, So a year after I went sober. And, you know, I I was faking them in my relationship. Oh, probably even more. I think a lot of people (laughs) were like, yeah, I But it's it's so normalized. Then also what the problem with that, it's so normalized, but the problem with that, and and it's a big topic that I want to be discussing on this season, is that... If you fake orgasm and you continue along with that narrative that we all have sex like a porn star Mm -hmm. and that it just happens, this thing of kind of being slightly objectified and this whole performance, how are men ever going to know any different? Right. Like we can get annoyed that, you know, oh, I faked it and he, he didn't actually make me. But if you don't communicate you... <laughs> what your needs are, he's not going to know. Right. And then I think they get annoyed because they're yeah. like, they want to know. Yeah. But we don't give them that opportunity because we're so stuck in, oh, okay, this is what I've been sold since I was such a yeah. young girl. So this is what I have to keep doing. Yeah. And it's because we don't feel like it's safe to communicate. And when mm. you feel like it's not safe, you're not going to speak about it. Especially if it's someone that you love, you feel like, oh, but what if I upset them? What if they, you know... Um, and we're always, especially as women, I mean, we, we just have to be very honest. We're conditioned into this niceness, right? Mm. Where we don't want to kind of to bother. Please. We don't want to, yeah. Um, so in getting sober for me, I realized that that was huge. And it wasn't even just, a, oh, for sure. And I also realized that my sexuality wasn't even just about sex in itself, because I think that's a thinking that we have to kind of step out of, um, where we think sex and sexuality is about penis and vagina penetration. It's not. I truly believe it's like a life force it's the Mm. way that you navigate the world it's the way that you kind of harness your femininity you know by sharing all of those things that's when I founded my company Cherry Revolution Um, yeah can you tell us a bit about that yeah so that was a result of me realizing that I needed to work through that sexual shame not having anywhere to speak about it no one was speaking about it you know the conversations would kind of stay in the living room would stay in the restaurant and then we just 
go out and fake orgasms again and we will come back and talk about <laughs> <laughs> so out of frustration and i think a lot of incredible things are born out of a place of frustration and not seeing what it is you actually need and having to create it i started talking about my pussy and and harnessing the relationship with me actually referring to my body in ways that I've been told are shameful mm -hmm. in ways that I've been told it's only okay if a man mm -hmm. is speaking about it in ways where we're more comfortable with hearing pussy as an insult it, it's just so weird I just started to question everything someone put up something on Instagram it's like okay why is pussy associated as weakness Weak, yes when essentially it's the most powerful life force on the earth and it can literally make a human come into this world. It's so, so, it's it's so like... interesting. I always say pay attention to whatever your response was when you heard that word. And mm. it's okay, not out of judgment, but that can also signal whatever belief you have, right? Mm. It then started to serve as a permission slip for other people to do the same. So my sobriety and sexuality and doing more research into mindset and looking at the systems that we live under it all kind of started to allow me to make peace with everything that I had experienced to kind of give myself some grace. How did you sort of unpack and let go of that shame that you had? Mm. Because I think quite a thing for a lot of people um, listening will be, you know, we there is a huge connection between shame and sexuality. Yeah. If we've lived in a certain way and been behaving in a certain way up until a certain point, but then mm. suddenly realize that we want to do things differently, how do we make peace with the past version of ourselves and let that go and then mm. begin to truly embody like who we are and what we stand for in this moment? Yes. Oh, that's a good question. For me, one of the biggest things I had to do was inner child work because I realized that there was a part of myself, a very young part of myself, that had decided from a very young age that I wasn't enough. And making peace with myself personally wasn't about me doing it from where I was as a 24 year old woman. I actually had to do the deeper work of mm -hmm. going way back onto my timeline. And I know that for some people hearing this, it might sound like it's a lot of work and that's because it fucking is. I think we, <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to realize that in order to actually really make peace, not on a superficial level, it's gonna be hard. But I sometimes think that people can just rehash the past and you can intellectualize it and make it make sense in your mind, but you actually haven't done the emotional body work. Yes, oh my goodness, that's exactly it. And I realized that I did have much deeper to go, but I still wasn't able to get deep enough. And because none of it was speaking to the subconscious, it was speaking to my stuff. conscious mind, right? Yeah. My analytical mind. Which goes back um, to what we were talking about at the beginning of like these internal belief systems. Like yes. if you can't touch them, it doesn't matter how much you desire something or yes. want something. It's like they're going to be essentially commandeering the shit. Yeah, so for me, making peace was about actually getting to the root of what was happening. And for me, it was my beliefs. And they were beliefs that were not created in my 20s, beliefs that were formed when I was very young, beliefs that were formed because I grew up in a home where I saw physical abuse. And, you know, I made a lot of decisions about what that meant about me. That's when I discovered NLP. So you do a lot of timeline work where you go onto your timeline and look at the moment in which you made that decision about yourself. And I did a lot of kind of ritualistic stuff like writing letters to that version of myself 
to the version of myself that used to black out and lie and cheat and not know when to fucking leave the party. Because I had so much resentment towards that part of myself in the beginning of my mm-hmm. sobriety, which is normal. And also because whenever I ran into people from the past, they remind Why you who like you used to be. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I totally get that. And you're like, not that fucking person anymore. And they don't <laughs> always mean to. I feel like you have people that intentionally question your new path mm. and they want to remind you like oh come on that's yeah. not really you. i know who you truly right. are <laughs> right and then there are people who do it in a it happens in a very subtle way in a conversational way but it triggers that mm. part of you and you're like no i'm not that same person mm. anymore or you know you might find yourself in situations where the things that you used to find funny you just don't find funny anymore, but you have someone in front of you who is still speaking to you at that level mm. that you used to be. Because or... also that's a familiar comfort for them oh, because for they're like, that's exactly. the role you play in my life as exactly. far as I'm concerned, especially if they haven't been on that path with you of your self-development. Oh. Whereas instead of trying to get rid of them and, and talk shit about them and say, I'm not that person anymore, just kind of make peace with the fact that that is what you needed at the time. Believe it or not, that is actually what needed to happen a necessary at the time. tool yeah. for you to survive. Oh, for sure. It's all you knew. And you were also doing the very best with what you had. Mm-hmm. That's something that I remind myself. Because I, I read somewhere and I always find it very useful to come back to. It's like everyone's doing the best they can with the tools and self-awareness they mm-hmm. have available. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, let's not berate ourselves yes. for the past versions of ourselves when we didn't know any better. Yes. I know for me... The- <laughs> We would have got on five years ago. I mean, we get on now in a very different way, but I feel like we would have had a lot of fun. Right? Can I ask what you think was your biggest lessons or even just some of the little things that you feel when you look back at that time, you're able to see that actually this had to happen because if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't know this now. I think it put me on a spiritual path. Mm. And I think for that, I'm eternally grateful. And it also encouraged me or forced me to cultivate relationships and also balance within myself, which were all like foreign concepts, really. But what I describe to people now, if they're like, well, can you just casually drink? This is very dramatic, but it feels spiritually dark for me Mm. the next day. I guess that's one thing. And also, you know, it's really interesting everything you're saying about embodying those parts of ourselves that we we deny. Like, because mm. I'm a people pleaser, I can be quite shy. Mm. And I think that for me, alcohol was a way that I just like, I wasn't aware of what people were thinking, yes. feeling, so I could just be whatever the fuck I wanted to be. And there was something liberating in that. Yes. And it's like, okay, how can I incorporate that into my life in like you say in a healthy way Mm -hmm. and be a little bit stronger and have like stronger boundaries and say no i would say it's when you're able to stand up for yourself state your needs and to state your desires and to stand up for yourself in a way that feels quite scary but in a way that frees you in so many ways and i say that knowing full well that to state our needs and our desires often feels unsafe so boundaries can seem quite disrespectful they can seem like someone's being harsh because we're not told that our needs are important we're not told that it's important to actually say how you Mm -hmm. feel if you're not okay with something instead of just allowing it to happen it can seem rude or it can feel like a personal attack Mm. but instead of it being in your mind you actually express it because there's a big difference i think we confuse 
barriers for boundaries mm. and i think of barriers as when you know that you're not okay with this thing and this is not okay and then you keep it in your mind and you yeah, don't actually that... express it when i talk about saying no uh with yes energy it's about saying no in a way that is in fear based it's not about saying no in a way where you're shrinking yourself with that no but actually you're standing tall in that no and saying i respect myself enough to not allow this to go ahead and there are so many ways right it can be i i gracefully decline i say thank you for approaching me with this it looks amazing i can't wait to see how it turns out but unfortunately i don't have the capacity for that okay question does the energy come first or the language or do they simultaneously kind of match up i believe the energy comes first mm -hmm. with everything you have to I feel think it oh for sure with everything i think it's, it's energy so first and we also i think if we don't check our energy yeah you know, going yeah. into a situation i think we rehearse what we're going to say but if we don't like people are responding to energy all yeah. The time and language is just like the outer layer of yes that. and i think it's also understanding that if i say yes to something that i don't want to be a part of that is self-betrayal if i mm. fake an orgasm that is self-betrayal if i drink again that is self-betrayal and with the kind of awareness that i have and the identity that i'm trying to cultivate to I don't self -harm. See, oh for sure because sometimes we think we have to wait for the big things to happen for us to start saying no but it's the tiny little things that happen mm. every single day this is where also self-compassion comes in when you notice these things about yourself and you're like huh noticing patterns and then instead of berating yourself for the pattern just actually look at it in an objective way just look at everything this is what i do and this ties in with the how do you make peace with yourself is that i don't think the making peace happens once and then you're done that's another important thing you're constantly gonna have to do that mm -hmm. so it has to be a practice you have to start somewhere mm -hmm. i think we also get very um overwhelmed when we realize just how much needs to be changed mm -hmm. or how much we want to change something and it often leads us, leads us into inaction where we don't actually do anything at all. And we decide that this is just who I am. You know, yeah. I, think, I think that happens quite like a lot. Like take it or leave it. This yeah, is, this, this is, is just who I am. Because I think we're both examples of people that like, if you want to change, you can. <sighs> you can. I remind people this all the time when they meet me at the level that I'm at now. And I just remind, you just have to scroll right down on the same page online that I have on Instagram to see where my day one was. Everything mm. is still there. And you, wow. you're able to actually see the progress, but you have to show up for it. You have to show you up for it. You have to show up for it, even when you don't want to. Mm. Yeah. Which is quite a lot sometimes. Oh, for sure. We've unpacked a lot. I feel like I've we learned really so have. much. <laughs> Thank you so much for this coming on. Amazing. Adore you. Think oh, you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you for gracing us with your pearls of wisdom. Thank you. I loved this. So if you enjoyed this episode with Africa, listen out for a, a mini episode that we have coming in the new year where we continue this conversation, but we'll be focusing more on the money mindset and professional life and our attitudes towards money and our relationship to it, really, on a very sort of energetic level. So watch this space. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to follow Africa on social media, you can find her at Africa Brook and me at Kagi's World. I also wanted to share some very exciting news with you guys. I'm going to be doing my first Saturn Returns with Kagi live show in the new year. And it will be in line with the socially distanced guidelines. So please don't forget to check out my socials for more details on the Saturn Returns with Kagi live show. 
Saturn Returns is a Feast Collective production. The producer is Scala O'Malley and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and remember, you are not alone. Goodbye. <laughs>